welcome to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. I'm Kira Fedishin, Associate Digital Editor for Wound Care, and we're happy to have you listening today. Just as a reminder, this podcast is intended as an informational tool for medical professionals and is not intended to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Today we're joined by Dr. Steve Berquist, a member of our Wounds Journal Editorial Board, as well as Dr. Eric Lulove of Kent Hospital. Together, they'll be discussing the details of Dr. Lulove's recent original research paper titled, Final Efficacy and Cost Analysis of a Fish Skin Graft versus Standard of Care in the Management of Chronic Diabetic Foot Ulcers, a Prospective Multicenter Randomized Controlled Clinical Trial. Thank you both for joining us today, and I'll turn it over to you. Hey, good day, everybody. I'm Steve Burquist, uh, medical doctor and wound care physician in the Tennessee area. Happy to be sort of guiding some of this discussion today on a very interesting subject. And with me is Dr. Eric Lulove, who is uh, one of the main authors of the paper we're discussing. Now, as far as my background goes with what was used on the patients, I can tell you that I've had no uh, work payment, anything uh, with Kerasis, and I've not even been able to use the product. So I'm one of the physicians that would be looking with interest, but in no bias in any way. Now, Eric, uh, please introduce yourself and maybe some of your colleagues and a, a few of those kind of things. Thanks, Steve. So hi, everybody. Uh, I am Dr. Eric Lulov. I am a uh, foot and ankle podiatrist, wound care specialist based in Coconut Creek, Florida. So for those of you not knowing where that is, I'm about an hour north of Miami. As far as my disclaimers go, I am, you guys have seen me around at SAWC. I'm on the planning committee. I've served in that capacity for 10 years. I serve as one of the liaisons to the Alliance for Wound Care Stakeholders for the Wound Healing Society on the stakeholder side. As far as uh, this project was concerned, I was the lead, pri- the lead primary investigator in the clinical trial, was a paid consultant and scientific advisor for Kerasis for a number of years, and uh, happy to report that we were able to present the paper to the wound care population. As far as my, my wonderful colleagues who have who participated in this project, some very household names that a lot of people recognize, Dr. John Lantis out of Mount Sinai in New York, Dr. Brock Lydon in uh, just outside Cincinnati, Ohio, Dr. McEnany up in Northern Illinois, Dr. Alan Raphael um, outside of Atlanta, Dr. Klein, Dr. Winters in Indianapolis, and then obviously we had some internal help with some internal statisticians with Dr. Huyn from Kerasis themselves. So we had a lot of people involved in the project. There's a, a million more people I could say thank you to that got this project started that were behind the scenes in the middle of it, got it started, left the project in the middle. But I just wanted to, to thank Kerasis for funding this project and, and being behind our clinical trial and, and providing us all the resources to that at least that way that Dr. Lantis and I were able to create the clinical trial and the research papers as a result of the work that everybody did. Beautiful. And for those that are listening for the first time, we are actually looking at a study that is comparing the Keras' product of fish skin, as some of you have already heard about, and with a standard of care being an arm that has a collagen-based application that pretty much everybody should have access to a collagen base. So we have a good standard of care, not a wet to dry gauze or anything of that nature. And and so I like that. So this abstract of the paper itself, which may be something that 
the majority of people only read an abstract and don't go on, it does cover rapidly some numbers, but it doesn't give you near the meat of the sandwich. It's like a hamburger with just the bun with no meat. I mean, the abstract is beautiful, but getting into some of the nitty gritty here is really good. So first of all, of course, as all these papers do, we take a moment and it talks about diabetes, the effect of ulcers, uh, you know, that we see the cost, the, and this is something we see readily if you're in the wound care space. And of course you see this data all the time. We won't spend a lot of time today looking at the basic data of diabetic foot ulcers uh, across the board, but we will come back to that because toward the end of this, we actually are looking at cost versus benefit and a little bit of that comes in there. So I think it is important to recognize. So just, uh, just to mention there real quick, your standard of care versus the fish skin, because you know, that's, that's a good comparison that gives us something to actually have a good comparison to. Yeah. So, and thanks for the question. It was really what we, so when we started this project, we, we really kind of sat down and figured out how do we, how can we get the standardization on the patients to begin with, like through the randomization process and how do we recruit? So, and keep in mind that we had actually started this project right before COVID. So we, yeah. we ran this study during COVID, which was really just the fact that we even got it done was remarkable, but the fact that we were able to still recruit during COVID and, and do and have all the precautions with the public health emergency was, was with all the clinics and all the investigators was really, really nice. But so one of the things that we did as far as the standardization of all these patients is we went through and everything was IRB approved. And we wanted to make sure that the wounds extended through the dermis, but not into tendon, muscle, or bone. So that was per the IFU of the product and per a lot of the coverage policies that we have to work with, that for a lot of the cellular tissue product applications, you cannot put this over bone, muscle, tendon, that it's really just gotta be dermal origin um, applications. The index ulcer had to be four weeks to one year duration with a failure of prior therapy, documenta documentation of failure of prior therapy. We limited the wound size from one centimeter to 25 square centimeters. And we also made sure that everybody had a cleared vascular status, that they had to have transcutaneous oxygen measurement or skin perfusion pressures of greater than 40 millimeters of mercury and had an ankle brachial index between 0 0.7 and 1.3. So we wanted to make sure, or a toe brachial index of greater than 0.6. So we wanted to make sure that we were really covering all of our bases in the clinical recruitment phase to make sure that all the patients would qualify. We didn't want, obviously, this is not designed to be looking at you know healthy 50-year-olds. These are patients with active diabetic foot ulcers that are at the high-risk populations of what we have. One of the things we did was we did a 14-day run-in so that if the patients had 40% improvement in their percent area reduction in the first two weeks of care, which was with the collagen allogenate therapy, then they were immediately removed from the clinical trial because they were showing signs of improvement within two weeks. So if the wound was reduced by greater than 20% after 14 days, they were removed from the trial. So let me just re-clarify that. And the other thing is we want to make sure we excluded any heel wound because the reason for that is diabetic heel wounds function much differently on plantar weight-bearing pressures than a four-foot ulcer. 
patients with plantar heel wounds require more offloading, more surgical interact interventions. They they almost behave like Stephen, as you know, you treat a mm -hmm. lot of them. These behave more like a like a sacral pressure ulcer than they do a diabetic ulcer. So there's more ischemic issues in the heel than that affect the play on the, the wound healing. And then anybody that was on systemic steroids or corticosteroids systemically were excluded from the trial. Or patients that were on renal uh, renal replacement therapy or had serum creatinine of greater than three. So we really wanted to make sure the patients had some renal insufficiency that could still qualify for the trial, but were not in full renal failure or in CKD stage four. So those were some of the some of the limitations we did place on the patients recruited into the trial. So I like the way we've done that. And uh, for those that are listening that are wound care providers, they'll also recognize the benefits of what you've noted. Now give me just a moment of what it is that we're talking about for those who have not actually been involved with the uh, Atlantic Cod Skin. The, so, mm -hmm. So for those, yeah, so this is a, a, you know, it's an, it's a xenograft. I mean, at the base of what we talk about, it's a non-human derived tissue graft. So it's, it's from Atlantic Icelandic cod. And for those of you that are familiar with where Iceland is on a map, it's way above the 60th parallel. It's, I mean, Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland is probably at the lowest point of Iceland at about the 61st parallel, but where they get all the Atlantic cod skin from is up in the North Icelandic Sea of the Arctic Ocean, where the main plant is in, in I'm gonna to try to pronounce this correctly, and I hope that uh, the, the CEO of the company doesn't butcher me too much on the video, but um, it's, it's called Islandifer, and that is way above the 66th parallel. So the point of why cod skin is so important for wound healing is that because the waters are sub-freezing, there's very little bacterial growth in the fish naturally when they harvest and de-skin. And, and so in the same cod that you buy in the store, you're, it's, it's all sustainable product. So they harvest the skins, the meat is then saved and shipped iced over to the United States where it's then packaged and processed, which you go and pick up at your local supermarket. So so it's, this is, so part of the process and why this is such an important piece is that there's really very little waste on the fish. It's not like we're just harvesting the skin, throwing the meat away. This is a sustainable food source. It's a sustainable supply source for wound healing and for dermal origin, for burn care, for, you know, reconstructive surgery. Yeah. So it's, it's a really nice, the company's done a really nice job as far as making sure that they're not wasting life. Now, the, like serving a purpose. the slides that I've looked at, the microscopic slides of the, um, you know, the, the process, not being a pathologist, when I looked at human skin and I looked at this microscopic of the fish skin, you're, it's like you're guessing, is this human skin or is this the fish skin? There's so much correlation there. Right. So the big difference between human skin and fish skin so human skin has a lipid layer. We have an actual fat lipid layer. Cod skin does not. It actually has an omega-3 fatty acid layer. And that is the biggest difference. But literally when the tissues are integrated, you can't even tell where the fish skin ended and human skin started. It's very integratively into neodermis, almost natively with vascular influx and 
cellular infiltrations from the host to the donor tissue. That may be a very important uh, reason why it seems to work well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, that, in that regard. Now, on the treatment phase, so as we move into this study and we looked at treatment phases, there was just a few little caveats in there. The application of the fish skin was cut to shape resembling the wound. So it's not just like plastering the whole area, but actually going into the wound. And is, uh, do you think that uh, has a, uh, well, it's just something that I think a physician or a provider would be interested in if they're gonna use the product. Well, and, and we've, we've gone through this. If you've been in this industry for as many years as you and I have been, mm -hmm. with multiple products, some tell you, you know, you can overlap. Some tell you cut it exactly the size. Some tell you it's up to you. It's what you feel like doing. One of the things that we found in the clinical trial was that you had to have a very good host graft response. So one of the things that I particularly was a, was a pet peeve of mine with my clinical trial patients was to make sure that the wound was very thoroughly debrided, sharp excisional debridement almost to a surgical, you know, get it down at least three millimeters, yes. really healthy bleeding tissue, remove all the proteolytic enzymes and the biofilm and re reduce any issues of bio burden that could exist, but really get a good host graph interface. And almost where you want that tissue almost blood soaked before you put your semi-occlusive dressing on top of it. You almost kind of, I would place the wound, securely fixate it with the quarter inch steric strips, and then literally just kind of like let it sit for 30 seconds to a minute to allow that host graft interaction to take place before dressing it. You know, we're always in such a rush to place the graft, get it securely fixated, put the dressing on. Sometimes waiting that 30 seconds to allow, to watch the process of, of the patient's own blood supply interacting with the graft tissue to make sure that you're getting that good inflammatory reaction on the tissue. Now, do you think... Initial, do you think this had any effect? How how were you doing oh. when you were putting on the on the uh, the collagen? I mean, I, just as just as clean and bloody and putting it in. Yeah. Tell me, yes, do you think there was a comparison there? I don't know if there was much of a comparison. That's too hard to measure. Um, okay. I just know with all my years of working with with these xenograft tissues, um, whether it was bovine or ovine and and now fish skin and and other products that we've used over the years, at least me particularly, I I wanted to kind of let that host graph interface take place almost as if I was doing it in the operating room, you know, and you're just kind of taking your time and making sure that you're fitting the graph properly and you're sizing it and securely and surgically fixating it with chromic gut or, you know, silk or whatever your, whatever your coup de gras treatment choices or staples or whatever. But I, I just kind of felt that it was more important to see that interface and allow the patient to see that as well. That they, I think this they is really that working. This is really important because I would suggest that we have many providers. Um, I'm internal medicine background, not a surgical background. And I can remember when I first started in wound care 16 years ago, brand new to it, uh, had some wonderful training. And then I'm on my own, you know, a few weeks later. And my nurse that was with me, who was the nurse of the provider that trained me, you know, I finished one of my first ones on my own. She looked at me and said the other provider's name and said, so-and-so wouldn't be finished yet. And I was like, give me a knife. <laughs> I'll, I'll do more. 
So, you know, that was 16 years ago in the beginning. Yeah. But how many of our providers might not have the uh, surgical background where they're comfortable with a good debridement? And I think it is a good piece of information in our discussion today to say that a good debridement is important to a good outcome. I mean, I it's think, a simple thing. I think with any of these cellular tissue products, including, you know, it doesn't matter what classification the tissue is. <clears throat> I, I really do believe and I've been preaching this for a number of years. I have always said when I've done educational programs or dinner programs or even on the podium, I have always said that that wound should look like a mash unit when you're done with it. You know, and, and, and that's the point really, I wanted really to bring should. You, yeah. you really, I think it's important that you have, not that the patient's hemorrhaging all over the floor, but that the wound should look like it really worked on it today, that there's edge debridement, you've removed all the senescent tissue, You've gotten the edges really well worked down. All the hypertrophic tissue has been removed if it's a DFU. You know, that you've really done a nice job in, in clearing out the base of the wound of any potential biofilm that you've done your job. That's the whole point of surgical debridement. It's not to take a little curette and go snip, 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 and then you're done. It's, it's especially if you're applying a multi-hundred dollar product where there's a cost yes. to what you're doing. Yes. And... You have responsibility as a physician, as the qualified health provider, whether you're a physician, nurse practitioner, PA, that are applying these tissues, that you are, you know, you're, you're buying a product. It's, it's, I mean, think about, you're not going to like, you know, take a nice $35 per pound steak from home and just throw it on the grill without prepping it and making sure that you're going to take care of it before you cook it. Same principle. This is a very expensive, these are expensive tissues and we need to treat them as if they are a part of the entire process of what we're doing. And, and there's a cost involved. And so, I, you know, I just think that that was worth us spending a moment on because yeah. the foundational preparation is definitely a good piece of our outcomes. Now, still in the treatment phase, but, but wanting to say one more thing, ulcers that had not reduced an area by 50% or more at week seven were considered treatment failures. So you were looking for a response and then moving them on well at an appropriate that was time. in the control arm those were okay. those were in patients that received collagen alginate therapy okay after week seven after we had randomized them through the seven weeks because we all know the data that if the patients aren't going to heal by week 12 you know we know that the predictor of healing with the Sheehan study years ago was if they don't have 30 percent healing by four weeks that the, the projection yes. is not going to heal at 12 we felt that if we carried them to seven weeks on the collagen alginate arm and there was no real progression to 50%, then there was no point in continuing standardized care therapy with them, that they would cross into the treatment arm to get the fish skin graft. So, and that was part of our reasoning was like, why we don't need to keep pushing historical data when we already know what's going to happen. And it's not right. fair to the patient. They've, you know, they volunteered for this and, They've gone through seven, don't forget, plus the two weeks of running. So they've had nine plus additional weeks of non-progressive healing on top of whatever they had before this. So that's so it's important to, to move them on. It's yes. a lot to ask of a patient. And I think that's I think that's part of the quality of life that we all have to deal with, even if we're not treating patients in a clinical trial. It's how long do we run these patients out with treatment arms that aren't working? So and beautiful point. Recognizing, listen we need to do something more aggressive, more advanced earlier in the cycle to push this up, to push the goalpost a little bit. 
And now this wasn't just an opinion of one person, if they were healed or not healed. You, you uh, had a vascular surgeon, a podiatrist, internal medicine, three different approaches in mm -hmm. looking at this, correct? So yes. Uh, yes. So that was watched closely. Now, the long-term durability of the closure. So you had six months follow-up, one year follow-up. And uh, what could you say about that? So the, the long-term durability was I thought was really was really amazing as, as what we found was that the majority of the patients stayed closed. The majority of the patients really did not have recurrence. And I thought that was a big part of what we were doing with the long-term follow-ups was that we just basically kind of put them in orthotics and had their diabetic shoes. And we just really kind of that the majority of these patients were healed by 12 weeks or you know, that the proportional index of wounds were healed by 12 weeks. And then, yeah, there was uh, somewhere later in the paper, it was yeah. mentioning of the three of the five or three of the four recurrences, we're not using offloading. Correct. And this That's is exactly just everyday yeah. real, real life. When I heal a diabetic foot ulcer and send them out, I'm planning on seeing them again with a recurrence unless they actually follow through with wearing their offloading and paying attention, you know, correctly you know, it's, so it's it's one thing to heal a patient it's another thing to keep them closed because we know the data what happens when they have a recurrence you know the the instance recurrence is that patients with a diabetic foot ulcer 50 percent are going to have a recurrence within you know the data better than i do it's three to five years they're going to have another one and and we know what happens at that point going forward god forbid they need a hospitalization and you know an amputation that's a whole nother issue so i think if we take a bigger proactive approach with making sure the patients are followed up appropriately, just yes. like, just like when a patient loses their leg and has a BK amputation and they get the proper prosthetic, they can have a functional life, but they got to use the prosthetic. Otherwise they're sitting in the wheelchair the whole day, you know, and now you got other issues. So, uh, you know, the study was well designed that it is hitting these issues that we're talking about and maybe boring to some people, but yeah. these are real life issues that make this a realistic study. So there's primary, secondary and tertiary outcomes. Uh, you're looking at primary, just wound healing at 12 weeks. You're looking secondary outcomes, uh, which is time to heal. And the tertiary outcomes was the recurrence we just talked about. So I like that the study functioned into those pieces of puzzle. Don't really have to spend much time there, but the details did get looked at. Yeah, um, so one of the biggest things that obviously in any clinical trial, and we look at percent area reduction, that's is the product working in the trial that we expected to. And, and one of the things that I wanna take, every, that everybody should take home from our discussion today was that what we found with, with fish skin graft was that you didn't see it working so quickly weeks one to two or even two to three where we really saw the big jumps were weeks kind of like three to six. That was mm -hmm. the big jump in, in patient responding to the applications on the tissue was really be at it. So we kind of, we kind of pushed out the percent area reduction to six weeks because that's what the data was showing us, which was showing us that at six weeks, we had a mean percent area reduction of almost I think it was 51.6% at six weeks. And that was in the collagen alginate arm, that was at 56.1% in the collagen, in the standard of care arm. And then in the fish skin graft arm, it was 72.6%. So I, I even circled that. It was right. important. So, 
what we did show was that you can still use collagen allogenate therapy with offloading and you're still going to get better results than alone. But now when you apply advanced therapy with offloading, you're still surpassing standard of care therapy. And if you ask any patient, if I can heal your wound 20% faster, 20% more in the same amount of time by using cellular tissue products, they're going to say, yeah, use the cellular tissue product. And, and, and that's what we found. And the argument behind the paper was to show this to the commercial payers so that they get off of this old idea that they're, that what we do doesn't work or they don't know what we're doing and, and trying to make this argument that like, listen, get on board with the science, get on board with the technology that we're, that we have available now because we're proving it. So I, lo I loved it. So there is one little thing I want you to discuss because if you've got a reader who's looking for details and you know how our brains work, we look for the things that are wrong and try to fix. We don't notice necessarily all the things that are beautiful. We're always trying to fix. Well, page 74 uh, on the article at the bottom there, when we yeah. look at the, uh, how are the man Whitney testing and looking at the difference. And I think this is what you were just talking about just now, if, if I'm clarifying that if we want to look at those two to six weeks, we're not seeing a difference. The difference comes after. And that's right. what that paragraph is about. That's exactly. exactly what this was. That's what the data was showing us that it, it literally like you don't see anything initially. And I think this is the pretty much the similar argument for most of the tissues in the in this group is that that it takes the body some time, especially in our diabetic populations, to overcome the internal biology of just lack of forming an immune response. Mm -hmm. These patients have an autoimmune disease already. They're already autoimmune deficient. They're already inflammatory mediated. You know, they've got cytokines and all the other stuff that's mm -hmm. inhibiting their healing that we have to overcome before we can see the benefit of these tissues. So it's easy to say, oh, it's not working in two weeks. We need to switch. And, and I would tell physicians, no, stick with stay the course because you will see a result. So I thought that was important. Moving on because people want to know about adverse reactions and events and going through nice details and laid out nicely. And this is a hard one to lay out because I've been yeah. principal investigator on studies before. And, you know, you have something go on and is it part of the program? Is it not part of the program? Was it going to happen anyway? What I really liked and noticed here was that there was only one infection in the fish graft arm compared to five infections in the college yeah. arm. There's a benefit here. Yeah. So in the intent to treat population, which we had 102 total, we only had eight significant adverse reportable SAEs, so significant adverse effects. And, um, you know, which kind of basically shows to that where we talked about the fatty acid level and the omega-3s, the omega fatty acids have an anti-inflammatory effect, which I think reduced the possibility of adverse event infections in these patients because of just the, what we know about fatty acids in general and omega-3s. I mean, we take fatty acids for our heart, right? We, we take three and six for to reduce inflammation in the heart. And we know that by reducing inflammation, you can reduce infection because you're reducing the cytokine activity. So... I think that's a big, uh, and we, we only had one patient that went to an amputation out of all that 102 patients in the intent to treat. So I think for the most part, all of the investigators did a really nice job in limb salvage, 
and protection and the patients were all on board and and you know the 45 patients that achieved healing in their index also during the trial out of the 100 out of the 77 in the total population we had 45 that healed within 12 weeks which is fairly remarkable numbers i mean it's great numbers yeah. actually it's great and and we do know that the benefit of the omegas are there in fact there's another product on the market that is just using omegas with a collagen simply because of the benefit. So we know that that's a, that's a benefit. And yeah. I, I love seeing that. I'm going to take us into uh, an area now is, is, you know, we're getting toward the end of this for you guys that are bored with this, hang with us just a moment longer. And this is cost. Yeah. Uh, and so I want you uh, not getting somebody lost in numbers. And there's a beautiful table three with some costs, but this is where I want you to approach from Eric. I want you to consider who benefits from the savings, who pays for the cost. In other words, if the benefits you're going to get into in a minute are, are going to be that in the long term, the non-healing actually cost us more than the cost of the healing. Yes. Who does it cost more? Who is actually reaping that? So give us a little bit about, this is a, an important part of this because this is the portion that uh, as we know, got one of the uh, major insurance companies online and put it in a formulary because they could see the benefit. But talk to it for just a minute because this is an important piece. Right. So uh, when we, when we're, anytime we're talking about cost of care, cost of cost of healing, okay. Yes, we're using collagen allogenic <laughs> therapy or other non biological sources of treatment are always going to cost less per visit, per incidence, per outcome of care. The real question is, what's the cost of the patient not healing? You know, we have all heard the horror stories of, you know, you've had patients, we all have had these in our practices where they go to another wound center or another specialist and they're being seen for 24, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, 32 weeks, sometimes even up to a year or longer. Yes. And, and that cost of the care is becoming an issue. It's, it's at what point does that number need to be before you decide to initiate advanced therapies earlier in the cycle. Even though advanced therapies are going to cost more initially, the, the play is that you're healing the wound, that you're getting the patient healed. So the continued cost of care ceases and now it becomes maintenance of care. It's now going into follow-ups and just maintenance. They're in their diabetic shoes. They're in their specialized offloading inserts or AFOs because of a gait instability, whatever it is, you're getting them out of the, the treatment arms, which are the big cost drivers. And we all know that the longer a wound stays open, the higher risk of infection, the higher risk of complications, the higher risk of everything else. So so hit hit the percentage of how many were healed in one arm can, to the compared to the other because we're going to talk about costs so people want to know what's the percentage healing so we got 51 60 go ahead you you do the so yeah so Stephen answer to your question on the the overall healing rates of these patients at the end of the clinical trial in the study arms was that we were looking at that after 12 weeks of treatment that 29 of the 51 patients had completely healed in the fish in the fish skin graft arm of the study, which was about 56.9%. And then we compare that to the collagen allogenate therapy arm of the study, which was only 25.5%. So, you know, so there was your comparison. So out of all the patients that completed 
the 12 week trial, when you look at, and don't forget, we terminated those patients at week seven. So, you know, those patients were only at 25% on average in the collagen alginate arm versus 56.9% in the fish skin graft. Now, when we look at everything in total, you know, when you're looking at the, the actual percentage reduction of all the patients, what we really had was the mean percentage reduction at 12 weeks was 86.3% for the fish skin graft patients and 60, 64% for the collagen alginate therapy. So, and that was at 12 weeks. So if you think about, you know, if you think about looking at the size of a quarter, which is roughly kind of about the average size of a diabetic foot ulcer, you know, using advanced therapies, you're going to have a lot of that quarter closed compared to two thirds of the quarter only closed with primary dr collagen dressing therapy. So I, I think the cost conversation that we're about ready to get into kind of makes more sense at this point. Yeah, exactly. So if I've healed and, and it's not twice as many, but listen, it's pretty close to it's twice close. as many. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's right there. So yeah. just yeah. using that term so that folks are just grabbing it in the discussion. That means that I really do save a lot of money compared to all of those that did not heal. And I think this is what the insurance company looked at that just added yeah. this to their. Right. And this is where I want to give Dr. Winters a lot of credit because uh, Dr. Winters, who's a podiatrist uh, in Indianapolis, did a, he had showed another cost efficiency study using fish skin graft before this study was out. So we had some basic data to kind of go off of, off of his study that he did. And what we really were looking at was like total cost of care versus and having to kind of figure out, well, if we, we know what the cost is with patients getting, getting fish skin graft, we know what the cost is per week and we can extrapolate that. But the, the cost related to patients not healing was about $6,783 in the fish skin arm over 10 weeks versus $2,009 in the collagen alginate therapy arm. And so when you look at this, you're like, wow, that's a $4,000 difference. You put all this fish skin graft on, it costs $4,000 more, but it doesn't, it doesn't include for patients with open wounds, regardless of treatment in the future, and the cost of the long-term care involved. So what we really kind of looked at was annualizing this. If we annualize yes. the care, which is what we kind of looked at, was if you annualize the care of a patient getting, in this case, fish skin graft, it came out to about $63,000 and change. I think the the range was like sixty-one to $63,000. But if you annualize the cost of not healing a wound, it was about $9,200. So this was Dr. Teitelbach in his study in 2015 when he calculated the cost of treating a DFU was close to $29,000. Annualized cost with a weekly cost of like five sixty. So if you apply the, the two analyses together, and this was kind of a little bit beyond my purview in the clinical trial, as far as doing all the math, and this is where the PhD statisticians came in, was that it, it came out to a difference of $2,818 when you're looking at the cost per therapy in the first year of treating a patient. So this is where yeah. I want you to go with that. So an insurance company can look and say, oh, it's gonna be better for us to have a little upfront cost and have lower cost overall at the year and save us $2,000 a patient. 
But what about our hospital, our person that is approving, our purchasing agent who's approving, let's get this product. And the first thing they look at is, oh, it's a higher cost. How do we help our local purchasing agent see that there is an overall savings? This is an important piece of the discussion. Right. So when you're looking at, right, so when you look at the numbers and dividing by the 51 intent to treat patients in the study that we came out with, that, that this annualized cost, and, and keep in mind, it's an annualized cost per individual. So yes, yeah, so the, you know, the materials manager who's got to sign off on all these invoices is saying, well, this is a, this is a $700 product, but the metrics have to follow the cost. So that like, if you're yes. saying the cost is irrelevant on the tissue. If we're able to save over the course of treating a patient, roughly about $3,000 that we're taking out of that, we're basically saving the system times we treat our hospital alone might treat 3000 patients a year. Let's just say you have 3000 diabetic foot ulcer patients a year with an annualized savings of almost $3,000 a patient. You just save the system a million dollars. And now so, let's take it down to the year. Now multiply that across the country and by insurance company and by government. And now, now you've got, now you're talking real numbers. When we know that the Medicare spend on chronic wound care, which also includes diabetic foot ulcers, was about 14.5% of the Medicare population. Okay. And that diabetic foot ulcers maybe are around between 16 to 20% of all of the spend. That's a lot of billions. That's a lot of billions. That's a lot. Yes. So anything that we can do as providers to make this job easier to get patients healed faster, I think is is fiduciarily responsible on our part, even if we are spending a little bit more money on the tissue products, but knowing that the data is there to back us up that we are doing the right thing. And keep in mind, this is an annualized average. So you might have some patients that heal at 15 weeks versus eight weeks. You know, it, it, it's a balance. You're going to have some that fall below the number and above the number. So, so where I think we're actually going to see the benefit of these numbers is as more and more of our groups become across the country, become reimbursed based on quality of care, quality metrics, how well they took care of and had results at a lower cost. And then that is the remuneration as opposed to, I get paid every time I see them. Right. So moving from the model of payment per visit into the payment, this is the budget I've got to work with. I've got to get the best results out of my budget and getting those best results is, uh, we can see, is possible when we step up front with a high quality yeah, and I think the, the real argument to have with, with your local hospitals or your local purchasing groups or whoever's making the final decision is that it's it's that the cost in any treatment, whether you're doing collagen alginate therapy or other collagen therapies, or you're going to go to advanced cellular tissue products, is that you, you have to look at the metrics on the cost of the patients whose ulcers close with a given therapy and those that are not closing with a given therapy. You, you have to look at both metrics. And the greater the numbers of the ulcers that do not close, there's gonna be a higher cost because you're, you're doing it for a longer period of time. So 
I, I think you kind of, we have to kind of break all this evidence-based cost analysis down to a very simple one word line that we can all use for our internal marketing, I guess. And the fact of the matter is that it is ultimately cheaper to close the wound than it is to keep it open. Perfect. Now we've pretty much reached uh, the details of this study, and maybe too too much detail for a lot. I think of a lot of detail watch. actually. Yeah. So, uh, but so <laughs> it it may get trimmed down a little bit for the presentation. But what conclusions would you like to offer before we close? Well, I, I think with any with any clinical trial, you know, we there's always room for improvement. I mean, there's always the things that we could have done better. The we could always use a larger cohort. I think every I think every researcher, you, me, even Dr. Lantis would agree that if we could have a thousand patients in the trial, it would be better than the hundred and two patients we had. I think if we could do more real world robust findings and actually include more patients that really present with diabetic foot ulcers and include the renal deficient patients and really parse out that data to see like, is this, you know, I mean, also best clinical practices. Every clinician's different. We tried to standardize the dressing regimens, but again, because every debridement is done differently by every each individual physician, it there's a variability with that. Geographic, I think we were we did not represent minority populations very well in the study. I know that's a big limitation that I would have wished we could have done better with, particularly black African American and black Hispanic, and and just I wish we had a greater emphasis on urban centers. You know, and I and I know that given the new FDA guidelines, that more research in this area is going to allude to that. I think I think any clinical trial really should be a good cross section of the country. It should be representative. I mean, it really should be. And now, the only thing is, we had a high dropout rate. It was almost twenty four and a half percent. COVID and, and the you know the rate falls within the range of similar DFU studies with the same time frame whether it was amnion chorion matrix or porcine or, or, you know, bilayer dermal regenerative tissues, it was within the same thing. But one of the biggest things was the global COVID pandemic. That was a big limitation that we had to fight through on this. And I know people don't want to hear about COVID anymore. <laughs> so we're kind of all done with COVID, right? But it really hindered a lot of the in-person visits. And that when you're right, when you're trying to run a clinical trial, you got to see the patients, you got to have them coming into the clinic and you got to see them and you got to get, you know, it, it just really kind of led to a lot of patients being lost to follow up in general. And that was just one of the biggest things we had that was a big limitation for us with the trial. Um, as far as the conclusions go, I think significantly, you know, the percentage reduction that we showed at 12 weeks, 86% is, was truly a remarkable number to have. The increased cost of using the tissue graft far outweighs not healing the patient from another take-home point. And I, I think as we do this, as we move forward with all these tissues, I really think the comparative studies between fish skin graft and other tissue therapies to show the legitimate difference or to not show any difference. I mean, we, we, we a lot of us anecdotally will say, you know, all the studies that are out there really don't show one product having superiority over the other. Well, if we could have NIH funding to show comparative, to get comparative study grants. That would be wonderful. I know those are lacking, but I, I think as all researchers, we'd like to have as much grant funding as possible to do this. But, and the biggest limitation is because we don't get grant funding, you know, a lot of these studies are, are run by industry. 
So that is, a, there's some industry bias within every clinical trial that we do in this space. And I'll be the first one to admit it because I'm, I'm partially responsible for some of that bias because of the work that we do. And until we are legitimately recognized by the NIH to get grant money, this is where we're at. So I appreciate the honesty of limitations because this is something that should always be considered. And if somebody is online looking at this study, wondering, okay, do I believe this data? Do I believe somebody else's? I think one of the things that helps them zero in and say, this must be real data is when you've got a presentation by an investigator like yourself, who not only can show the details, but can say, here's my limitations. I'd like to see these improve. Knowing that you're not just giving one side of the coin, you're trying to show both sides of the picture and say, we've got something here for you to look at. I've really enjoyed the talk today with you, Eric. Uh, Thank you I've so enjoyed much for having you me. For years. And, you know, the Wounds Journal is so good to get this data out to our providers. And so we appreciate uh, HMP also. Yeah, I'd like to thank HMP for this and, and Stephen for your time this morning. It's, it was great seeing you at SAWC and, and hopefully we're done with all this virtual meeting stuff. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so very much and, and really thank you again. Thank you to HMP and, and for the readers and for the video, for the everybody who's going to watch this, please take all of this data with a grain of salt. It is evidence-based medicine. This isn't, this is real That's world right. stuff that is legit now. So... There we go. All right. Have a great day. And for the yeah. audience watching, I hope you'll have a great day also. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you again, Dr. Berquist and Dr. Lula for joining us today. That wraps up our discussion. But for more information on today's topic, we invite you to take a look at all of the resources available online at the Wound Care Learning Network. Thank you for joining us on Speaking of Wounds and enjoy the rest of your day.